This week's sponsor is absolutely perfect for true crime fans, especially those of us that love a twisty, turny murder mystery. June's Journey is a game set in the Roaring Twenties. June's sister Claire and her husband Harry were found dead, and June is certain that they've been murdered. Now she must travel to New York, where her sister's estate was, to look after her niece and solve the mystery of Claire's death. You go along the journey with June, searching for hidden objects in different locations from the parlors of New York to the sidewalks of Paris, uncovering hidden clues to solve the mystery as you go. I'm already on chapter six and the mystery has gotten so good. I cannot wait to uncover more clues. I'm also loving how you get to customize your very own luxurious estate island. That's right, let your imagination run wild as you decorate your island with expansive gardens and beautiful buildings. My pool is literally insane. It has a waterfall. Discover your inner detective when you download June's Journey for free on iOS and Android. Well, he told me, this is the best part. He said, hey, I bought something for me, but it's like kind of for you. It's going to be here on Tuesday. (laughs) And I was like, what do you mean? Like, it's a gift for me? He's like, no, it's for me, but it's for you. And I was like, okay. So then today it comes, he unboxes this ukulele. And I was like, wait, what? And he's like, it's for me, but like, I know that you're going to be into this. (laughs) I was like, And he's not wrong. I'm very attracted to him sitting there trying to play this little tiny guitar. Welcome to another episode of True Crime Creepers, where we talk about all the real life creeps from serial killers to con artists. I'm Kristen, the true crime fanatic who loves to tell these stories. And I'm Ogap, the true crime newbie who hasn't heard any of them. Has he serenaded you yet? No, he is working on it, though. He tuned it. I'm like, it didn't come oh. tuned already? He's like, no, it didn't come straight from Hawaii tuned. I'm like, oh, okay, it's authentic. So <laughs> It's authentic. Well, so really I can't wait to... expanding our cultural interest around here. Okay. I are just same old, same old with me, you know? <laughs> <laughs> you got glasses now, so you're smarter than both of us. Look, I keep seeing these ads on, on the TikTok for these uh, cr- little crochet kits, and I have been very tempted to order them because they are like step-by-step, like show you videos, walk you through everything, like yeah, crochet for beginners. Uh, but I, then I'm like, when will I find the time? <laughs> When would I do yeah, that? <laughs> you don't have time for that. I would like it, though, because I think it would make me just a tad bit younger than you in spirit. I'm still 90, but I haven't crocheted anything yet. <laughs> I have allergies. I wear glasses, and now I have allergies. Oh, no. Are you getting, like, picked on at school with your glasses and your allergies now? <laughs> the bullies are coming out. It's uh, It's a tough day. It's a tough day. Well, uh, before we get into the story that I have for you today, which I'm very excited to tell you, I just want to, you know, announce that we have a Patreon. And oh, what? Yeah, I know. I know. I was keeping it a surprise for you, but actually we've had it for <laughs> over a year now, about a year and a half. And if you go on there for $5, you get access to all of our full-length bonus episodes. We do one every month and there's like 16 about to be 17 up there because we're going to put February's up there pretty soon. Have we recorded that? Yes, we have. Okay. It's McMillions. <gasps> oh! 
because I think this is going to come out after that. So we did our our February bonus episode is on the McDonald's monopoly scam. It's very fun. That was fun. And yeah, and you also get a shout out on the podcast when you sign up at the five dollar level. And then if you jump up two dollars to the seven dollar level. That gets you all of that, and you get access to all of our mini creeps. We have like 40, 40 plus up there now. That's a lot. And those are like shorter, usually shorter episodes on different topics. We just did one on scams. We did one with information on sex trafficking. We've done like crimes at a Waffle House, and then we've also done like Am I the Asshole stuff. So super fun over there. And then we also have a $10 level. Um, and that gets you all of that plus 20% off of merch. We've got to add a famous adjacent adjacent t-shirt, which we still haven't done. That was mm. going to be my summer project last summer, but didn't get to it. Yeah, like designing the merch. If there's someone that wants to do that, that'd be Yeah. <laughs> and you also get the episodes ad-free when you sign up at the $10 level. So that's our Patreon. I wanted to throw it out there. Patreon.com slash Creepers. All right, Mogab, you ready? Sweet baby. <laughs> yeah. You're distracted by your dog. <laughs> uh, yeah, listen, he's had a rough week. Started with National Golden Retriever Day, then his gotcha day. Then he got a haircut, though, Ooh. and then he just got three shots today. So I'm just keep an eye on him. You know, it's just a oh, lot. Poor Berksy. So him. But yeah, easily distracted. All right, well, for this, big thanks to an article in Vanity Fair by Mark Seal oh, called yes. The Man in the Rockefeller Suit. I love these Vanity Fair articles. Mark I've Seale. never once been disappointed in a Vanity Fair <laughs> And you episode. will not be disappointed in this. And I just found a TV show that's like episodic of different stories that have been featured in Vanity Fair articles. And I'm not sure if they're all true crime, but I'm definitely going to be <laughs> checking out that show. <laughs> Watch us become a Vanity Fair book report. <laughs> <laughs> this is a Mark Seal book report. Thank you so much, Mark Seal. I did use several sources for this, but that article is very thorough and great. So, okay. Sandra Boss was figuratively and literally a boss. She had an undergraduate degree from Stanford, an MBA from Harvard, and now worked as an executive in New York City making $2 million a year at McKinsey & Company, which is a global what? management consulting firm where she advised companies on complex business strategies. She was basically superwoman. She was respected. She was brilliant. But then she met a man named Clark Rockefeller. <laughs> yes, of those Rockefellers. He wasn't a descendant of John D. Rockefeller, oil tycoon, banker, and owner of one of the world's largest fortunes, but of his brother, William. More specifically, he was a descendant of William Rockefeller's grandson, Percy. Sandra and Clark met at a clue-themed murder mystery party in 1993 at Clark's apartment oh, in Manhattan, which stop. is just the best thing I've ever heard. So I want to go. I, I want to go to a clue-themed birthday party. That's so bad. the only way that you can meet your future partner. Agreed. She That's was dressed as Miss Scarlet, and he was Professor Plum. Yes. It was actually a party that he'd thrown specifically to meet Sandra. He knew her twin sister, Julia, through his church, but she was already engaged, and so she agreed to set him up with her sister, Sandra. <laughs> Did Julia have to go as Mrs. White? Because talk about a real... <laughs> I know. I wonder That's if they fought over who would be Miss Scarlet. <laughs> oh, I'm sure. 
Sandra immediately liked Clark. She said she thought he was funny, quirky, flattering, very complimentary. He shared her love of art. He actually had an art collection worth almost a billion dollars. And he didn't seem to be intimidated by her intelligence, which was a change from other men that she'd been with. She found it refreshing. And he was very intelligent himself. He'd gone to Yale at just 14 years old after being raised in the East Coast prep schools. I know. He had the accent and the wardrobe to match those East Coast prep school days and Can you imagine going to college before you could even drive? Absolutely not. No. Not for me. (laughs) Not for me. Not the college experience I want. (laughs) Yeah. He was familiar with the obscure novels that she loved, and he spoke several languages fluently, including Klingon. (laughs) Of course, his name did not go by unnoticed. Rockefeller. You know, it's not like she needed his money. But as good as she was climbing the corporate ladder, she was also shy and insecure, and she struggled with that social ladder. Something that would be a lot easier with the name Rockefeller. It could also help her win. Can you imagine being shy? Like, you still have all this working in your favor. Like, you're the Mm -hmm. top of the top. And you're like, oh, I'm still, like, nervous. Well, I wonder if the word shy is actually code for, like, socially awkward. Like, she's just a little Mm -hmm. awkward. And she has that part of her brain that works perfectly great. And she understands it all. And then this part of the world, she just doesn't understand. It's not as black and white as maybe the facts and figures that are in the, you know more intellectual side. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. But this name Rockefeller, it could also help her win in this like crazy competition game that she'd been in with her twin sister, Julia, their entire lives. Like they were close, but they were always in competition with one another, starting with selling Girl Scout cookies in elementary school and then who could get the best scholarships. It was this competitive nature that led Sandra to having so much success in life. She and Julia were both merit scholars in school. When Julia said she was going to Yale, Sandra said, well, then I'm going to Stanford. When (laughs) one had an Hermes scarf, the other would have Louboutin shoes, and they'd have to decide which one was better since they both cost about the same. They were always looking for ways to outdo each other. And what better way to win than by bagging an actual Rockefeller? (laughs) And I got to say, I can relate because I used to pretend that my name was Kristen Carnegie (laughs) because of the alliteration and the building. (laughs) Great. Uh-huh. But I wanted to be born into it, okay? I didn't want to marry yeah. into it. <laughs> we don't have time for that. No. Clark told her that he'd worked in finance, bouncing around from different firms on Wall Street before starting a nonprofit for international poverty relief. He called himself a freelance banker, where he would renegotiate debts for small countries, mostly third world. Sandra was basically smitten. Her friends didn't really know what she saw in him. He was small and kind of odd looking, and he never wore socks, but Sandra didn't (laughs) seem to care. (laughs) No. No. Mm -mm. They lived together for two years before Clark asked her to marry him at an Episcopal church in Maine. They were living on Nantucket at this point, and they got married in a small ceremony at a Quaker meeting house near where they lived, and this was in 1995. random. So random, but did you know that if you get married at a Quaker meeting house that you don't have to deal with that with pesky things like marriage certificates or licenses? No, is that for real? Yeah, that's for real. This would have been helpful information about a year ago, thanks. (laughs) Well, now you know. 
His family wasn't in attendance, of course. Not only had there been this like big falling out between Clark and the rest of the Rockefellers, but his parents had actually died in a car accident in Connecticut a while back, a few years before. The event was so traumatic to him, he actually refused to even enter the state of Connecticut ever again. He went on a road trip with some friends once, and when they had to drive through Connecticut, he made them all take bathroom breaks and like get gas before crossing the state line so that they wouldn't have to actually stop in the state of Connecticut at all. So very traumatic for him. His mom had actually been a child star named Ann Carter, who'd been in a movie with Humphrey Bogart like back in the 40s. Yeah. That was pretty cool. After they got married, Sandra might have been a little too busy climbing that corporate ladder to notice the red flags just waving away out there. First off, this nonprofit of Clark's was like literally nonprofit. Uh, he said the countries he was working with were so poor, it would have been unconscionable to charge them a consulting fee. And that like falling out with his family, mm-hmm. you know, the Rockefellers had yeah, resulted in him having just cut off completely no money. So, oh no. Yeah, she didn't seem to mind that he had no money. You know, she had enough money for the both of them and she actually really liked that he wasn't preoccupied with material things and she loved that he had this altruistic nature of wanting to help others. So, Sandra was just bankrolling their entire lives. She'd write him blank checks whenever he asked, no questions asked. His cell phone number was under a friend's name for some reason. He had no credit cards in his name. He didn't even seem to have a bank account, but she didn't seem what? to notice bizarre. or be all that worried about it. I know. She knew that he had that billion-dollar art collection, so if they were in a, ever in a bind, you know, he could just sell off some of his paintings. But Not like, that- have we verified that? Well, he's a Rockefeller. You don't, what, you're going to question his art collection? Yeah, because he doesn't seem very Rockefeller to me. <laughs> No uh, did you account. not hear me? I mean, can he the man open a like a baby's first Victoria's Secret credit card? And uh, he has an East Coast prep school accent. Mogab, okay. did you hear that? And he I mean, speaks good Klingon. Good enough for me. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, Sandra was just infatuated with him, and she just continued to ignore some of this suspicious behavior, even when it was like pointed out to her before they got married. When they were just engaged, one friend actually asked her. How do you know he's really Clark Rockefeller and not some axe murderer on the lamb? And Sandra yeah. just said that that was her fiance and that sh- he would have told her much more about his past than he would have told them. Sandra insists that she didn't care that he was a Rockefeller, but a lot of people say that's not true. And I say, how could it be true? How could it? How? How could you not care? I don't know. I mean, I, I'm not saying that's the only reason why you're right. interested in him, but you but care. But you care. You, but you care. You're living in New York. You got Rockefeller Center down there, and you don't care that his name's on the building. I think you care a little bit. Yeah, you care just a little bit, girlfriend. And there are definitely perks to being married to a Rockefeller while you're living in New York City. Yeah. Even if he was estranged from your family, the name is iconic. It's a definite status symbol. And some claim it's even how Sandra got promoted so often at her company, but that sounds like some jealous men because she did have her MBA Mm -hmm. from Harvard and she was a smart lady. Okay. Yeah, that's – I don't think that's – They had an apartment at 55th and 6th Avenue, coincidentally just six blocks away from Rockefeller Center in Manhattan. 
They split their time between New York and Nantucket with their 85-pound Gordon setter named Yates. Oh, what a good dog name. I know. Or pretentious, you know, like the poet Yates. Yeah, that's what I mean. (laughs) (laughs) When we were doing our uh, Save the Dates, we have a few people that have like the third after Mm -hmm. their name. My my dad uh, is the third. It's a good it's I, I a good new playing around. I did Russell cuz you know Russell's middle name changes. He's should be like a seventh I feel like if they all had the same oh. plus or middle name. Gotcha. So I played around and put third after his just to see what it looked like. And I was like, uh-huh. yeah, I don't hate this. Like I just love the, you know. If I was a boy, I would have been a fourth. Yeah, see? Way to go. My my godbrother has a friend that's a fourth and he goes by Quattro. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I'm going to start calling you Quattro. I'm just going to put the fourth, the Roman numeral after your name now. Kristen Williams, I, IV. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Excellent. I love it. They frequently had cocktails and dinners at private clubs where people would fawn over them because of the status of the Rockefeller name. But a friend, and I use that term very loosely here, a friend said that they weren't really people you wanted to be around. Oh, okay. Yeah. I love when my friends say that. (laughs) Right. They said that they were awkward and cold, and he said that people just put up with it because they were Rockefellers. Private clubs like the Metropolitan usually cost like $35,000 to join and then yearly fees on top of that. And look, I, I know nothing of this world, okay? This is not my world. But this is what the Vanity Fair article said because I did look it up and one article said it was only $5,000 a year to join. Oh, definitely I don't know not. if that like 35000 is like... The a, initiation fee. Right. And then it's 5000 a year after that. But anyways, they're usually expensive. But Clark, he found his way around that. He was uh, he started meeting people in Central Park. He would take Yates on walks out in Central Park. And he met someone who told him that he could join India House, which is a private club on Wall Street for like 1000 bucks, And that membership came with other memberships that, to really exclusive places like the Metropolitan and the Lotos. Hmm. So he basically found the cheapest way into all these private clubs. And while Sandra was at work all day, Clark was living luxuriously, dining with respected artists, writers, doctors, and executives, telling them all about his Learjet and inviting them to run their dogs at Pocantico Hills, which is the 3,500-acre Rockefeller estate in New York. Yeah. No one ever questioned his stories, not even when these promises he make didn't pan out. He promised one prominent artist that he'd buy one of his $10,000 paintings, and he went through all of the steps, and it was like a pretty like involved mm-hmm. process, but the sale never happened. He never My took- man is broke. My man is Anna <laughs> Delvey broke. We okay. got those blank checks, you know. He never took people to Pocantico Hills. No one ever saw his Learjet. And his marriage was not really working out. As soon as they'd gotten married, Clark seemed to change. He became controlling and difficult. Sandra said he would emotionally and physically abuse her. She actually left mm-hmm. him at one point, but he managed to convince her that he was the old Clark again, and she came back. And this is when Sandra got pregnant, and she was determined to work things out with Clark for the baby. And this came with several sacrifices for her, the biggest of which was their life in Manhattan, 
One day, Clark came home to say that he'd been walking the dog in Central Park and he'd had an unpleasant altercation with a woman. The police even showed up at their apartment to ask him about this incident. And soon after that, Clark announced that they were just going to move to New Hampshire. He said he just didn't want to live in Manhattan anymore. Forget that she works there. Yeah, I'm sure working remote's not an option at this time. (laughs) No, she had to commute from New Hampshire. What? Absolutely not. And he chose what Vanity Fair calls one of the wealthiest areas of New Hampshire, but what Wikipedia calls the 77th wealthiest area of New Hampshire, which was Cornish. And it might be 77th on the list, but it was home to Woodrow Wilson, artist Maxfield Parrish, and novelist J.D. Salinger. And Clark seems like the kind of guy who would be big into Salinger, you know. And look, I had my Salinger era, too, where everyone but me was a phony and I wanted to look way smarter than I actually was. All right. I went through it. But we're on the other side, and I think Clark is still in it here. Truly don't even know who that is. J.D. Salinger, he wrote, was that that my Salinger coming out? (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Sorry. He wrote one novel in his entire life, and it was... Sounds riveting. Oh my god! How did I just <laughs> this blank? This is amazing. Leave that in. How did I just blank on this? Tell me your. Tell me about your Salinger phase. Some it more. was my favorite book in high school. I read it, and he wrote a bunch of short stories. Oh my god! How am I looking this up right now? What is this like? I'm like it's gonna ca- catcher in the rye. Wait, was it really? Yes. What? Who's Who's the fan now? <laughs> oh, did you know that? You just Have said you read high it? school, and I just immediately went. Oh. Yeah, he wrote The Catcher in the Rye. That's what's oh, going to be in there. All that other stuff is coming out. <laughs> no. No, it's not. He wrote The Catcher in the Rye. But yeah, I did just blank on the name. <laughs> See, I'm over my Salinger phase, okay? That yeah. was like well, so... Well, you know, you're versatile now. That was so now 2004, the Taylor Swift Kristen. era. Yeah. So Sandra bought an estate in Cornish for three quarters of a million dollars, and immediately Clark decided it needed extensive restorations, including putting a pool in the backyard. Sandra was rarely there. She was away on business a lot, i.e. she was staying in Manhattan a lot because she works there. That is four hours by car. There's no, it's nine hours by bus, and there's no train that gets you there. So that's a four-hour car ride. Yeah, four-hour car ride. No, She probably you. needed that to blow off some steam before she got back. Yeah, I think so, too. I would. I'd be pissed. So she's not there very often, but Clark was making sure that his new neighbors noticed him. They threw him a welcome party where senators and top lawyers were in attendance. But then Clark started doing things that made the residents of Cornish a bit suspicious. Especially when the director of Cornish Colony Museum wanted to publish a book about the homes and gardens of Cornish uh, artists, and he wanted to include pictures of Sandra and Clark's estate in the book. And Clark was like telling her that his name was Clark Rockefeller, and he could put an injunction on this book. And he sent her an email saying that he worked for the U.S. Defense Department and couldn't have people (laughs) knowing where he lived. Okay, Clark. He may not have wanted it in print that he was living in Cornish, but he certainly wanted all of the residents knowing that he lived there. When he wasn't being chauffeured around town in an armored Cadillac, you could find him riding his Segway, name-dropping all of the people he was having (laughs) over for dinner, like the former German Chancellor or Stephen Hawking. A Segway in the 90s? That feels very (laughs) cool. (laughs) 
<laughs> yeah. Late night. Sounds 90s, like a Seinfeld 90s. episode. <laughs> I'm just picturing Kramer. Basically, but shorter. He doesn't wear socks. Doesn't Kramer have a thing about socks? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> This episode is sponsored by Pros. Supporting our sponsors really helps support the show. A couple of years ago, I decided it was probably time I figure out some kind of skincare routine, but the problem was, and has always been, too many options. I don't know exactly what I need or what's best for me and my skin. So thus far, my solution has been to just buy a skincare line off the shelf and hope it helps. But that's all about to change when my custom skincare from Pros comes in. Each and every bottle of Pro's custom hair and skincare is made to order and personalized with a unique blend of naturally powerful and proven effective ingredients to meet your needs. In fact, in a third-party, double-blind, dermatologist-supervised controlled clinical study, aka the gold standard in research studies, Pro's proved that personalization works better than off-the-shelf alternatives. Try it for yourself and get your healthiest hair in 30 days or get your money back. Pros is so confident that you'll love your results that they're offering our listeners an exclusive trial offer so that you can see the difference custom care can make. That's 50% off your first subscription order at pros.com slash creepers. That's P-R-O-S-E dot com slash creepers for your free consultation and 50% off your one-of-a-kind formulas. Pros.com slash creepers. Life doesn't happen bi-weekly, so why should payday? The money you earn can be in your hands today with Earn In. Earn In is an app that gives you access to your pay as you work, up to $100 a day or $750 per pay period. Just download the Earn In app and verify your paycheck, and then access your money as you earn it instead of having to wait for it to hit your account. Any money you access, including any optional tips, are automatically repaid from your next paycheck. It is a much-needed alternative to predatory payday lenders for people that find themselves in a bind, like a bill due Wednesday when payday isn't until Friday. Or you're like me and you're just getting slammed with birthdays. Why are all my friends Tauruses? With Earn In, I don't have to worry about being late with a gift because I had to wait for payday. Download Earn In today, spelled E-A-R-N-I-N, in the Google Play or Apple App Store. When you download the Earn In app, type in Creepers under podcast when you sign up. It'll really help the show. Creepers under podcast. Subject to your available earnings, location, daily max, and pay period max. See earnin.com slash TOS for details. Earnin is a financial technology company, not a bank. Bank products are issued by Evolve Bank and Trust, member FDIC. He claimed to have a 21 car collection and parked some of Mm. them on the property. Yeah. And then on May 23rd, 2001, Sandra and Clark's daughter was born. Almost a Taurus, but not quite. <gasps> I had to look it up. <laughs> so I was not like, quite. is she a little Taurus? They named her Ray Starro Mills Rockefeller. Ray spelled R-E-I-G-H. Hmm. I like that. I do too. Clark was enamored with the baby girl. He gave her the pet name Snooks, and she might have been <laughs> the only person he ever loved in his entire life. The only person that he couldn't lie to, cheat, or con. He was mostly a stay-at-home dad just doting on Snooks, homeschooling her, 
but he was still pulling the occasional stunt in Cornish. There was this judge in town named Jean Burling, and the article kept referring to her as the senator's wife, which bugged me because she was a like veteran judge. Oh, a whole ass judge. Yeah. Yeah. She was married to a senator, but she was like one of the first women appointed to be a judge in New Hampshire. And she was catching on to Clark's crap. All right. She had detected him as a fraud from the very beginning, ever since the first time they met when he started lecturing her about abstract expressionism, assuming that Jean knew nothing about art when she actually did and was like, I don't think anything you're saying is right. <laughs> she started wondering, like, who the hell is this guy? She questioned his actual identity, and he didn't like that. And he wanted to get back at the Burlings. Jean's husband, the senator, he was the owner of Trinity Church in Cornish. He had spent 20 years pouring his own money into restoring this church with the promise that he would donate it back to the town after 20 years, which had come up in 2004. So all of this came to a head at this town meeting in 2004, where Senator Burling was the moderator of the town meeting, and they were discussing spending $110,000 for a new police station in town. And so at this meeting, Clark stands up and says he has a check for $110,000, and he would donate the money to build the police station if Burling would donate Trinity Church and sell it to him for a dollar. So basically, he bought what? this church for 110000 of Sandra's dollars. And he's like doing it in front of everybody. So the senator has to like just yeah do it. Yeah. In 2006, Snooks turned five and was ready to start kindergarten. And she was accepted into this prestigious prep school in Boston called Southfield School for Girls. It's the sister school to JFK's alma mater. So this meant mm. that the Rockefellers had to leave Cornish behind, as well as their unfinished house, Trinity Church, and lots and lots of questions. Yeah. Sandra bought a house in Boston on the same street as Senator John Kerry for a reported $2.7 million. Clark became a stay-at-home dad, continued to be a stay-at-home dad, <laughs> telling other Southfield parents that he'd sold his jet propulsion company to Boeing for a billion dollars and he just didn't work he anymore. He didn't even have that. Lying must have been so much easier in the, in the early 2000s and the late 90s. <laughs> yeah, it was probably. Mm -hmm. Fact-checking. Yeah. He told the parents that Sandra only made like three to four hundred thousand a year, so people assumed that <gasps> he made most of their money. Oh yeah. hell no! Mm -hmm. mm -mm. Especially when he talked about how he was. At least if you're gonna blow her money, mm. at least like be appreciative and honest that it's hers. Right. Right. So, yeah, people assumed he made most of the money, and especially when he talked about donating a planetarium to the school. Yet another promise that <laughs> never actually happened. That's so embarrassing, too. That's, yeah. For his daughter. He, he did manage to get his name on the wall of the ultra-private Algonquin Club in Boston, which did a lot to give him credibility to this group of Beacon Hill lawyers, Harvard researchers, and successful business people that all stopped off at the Starbucks near Snooks's bus stop on their way to work. So he'd show up to Starbucks and like try to meet people, make these connections, you know. And one time he like, this is the kind of stunts he would pull there. 
he showed up to Starbucks like totally out of breath, talking about how he had just pushed an armoire up to the fifth floor of his house. So that immediately all these like, you know, so-called important people, they all knew that he had a five-story house. You know, that was just like hmm. his way of being like, I'm so rich, but in like yeah. a humble brag kind of way. Oh, I hate this guy. I wanted to like him when we started, but definitely not. No, he's the worst. Boston might have been the best place for Clark Rockefeller to shine, especially at the Algonquin, where it was very old boys club, blue blood, your connection to American history mattered, and the name Rockefeller sent everyone just into a tizzy. Yeah. But he'd do weird things, very Anna Delvey-like things. He'd invite invite them all for breakfast at the club where non-members can't pay, so Clark would pay, but then the next day he'd hit them all up for cash to pay him back. But all the while, Clark completely doted on Snooks. When I say he homeschooled her, I mean that by the time she started kindergarten, she could spell just about anything and had drawn the periodic table of the elements on a sidewalk in Boston in chalk. But, Hmm. and I don't actually know if she did that or if he like pretended she did that. I'm not really sure. But it also wasn't like he was drilling her all day. Snooks was a very carefree child. She just was also very bright. Her favorite book and movie was A Little Princess. Have you seen A Little Princess? Hmm. All girls are princesses. (laughs) And she and Clark loved taking walks together through the Beacon Hill neighborhood in Boston where they lived. And sometimes Clark would walk beside her or sometimes he'd like put her on his shoulders. But Sandra and Clark were disagreeing on so many levels, especially about parenting. Clark basically refused to discipline Snooks at all. Like she constantly had to just be the disciplinarian. And I think it was because of Snooks that Sandra started to get the courage to even think about leaving him. Despite Sandra being this ultra high-powered executive and the sole breadwinner of their family and very successful, it seemed like Clark held all of the power in their marriage. He'd managed to keep her under his thumb for the majority of, for most of their marriage, Moving where he wanted to move, despite her being the only one with a job and forcing her to have long commutes. She said there were times when they were living in New Hampshire that he didn't give her enough to eat and she woke up hungry most days. (gasps) And I'm like, why is he controlling what you eat? He even controlled all of the family's finances. Again, despite not being the one to earn any of it. He'd threaten Sandra that if she tried to leave him, he'd get full custody of Snooks. She was scared of him, but eventually enough was enough, and Sandra ended up going on a business trip and serving Clark with divorce papers, which put Clark in complete shock. Sandra moved into the Boston Ritz, and Clark moved in with some friends of his from Europe a few blocks away, (laughs) and Snooks split her time in between. Clark was immediately cut off financially, and he was totally distraught over it. No more memberships to fancy private clubs. No more antique cars or artwork. He told friends that Sandra had married him for his money and then bled him totally dry, which is why he had nothing now. He said she'd only married him because he was a Rockefeller. Which do we know what that like? What is the like? I know the Rockefeller Center, but like Mm -hmm. what are they rich for? 
Like, do I? I don't oil tycoon. So I said it at the beginning. But that's all of them. That's the whole family. Well, he like started the dynasty, like the Rockefeller dynasty in oil. He was an oil tycoon, banker, and uh, yeah, owner of one of the world's largest fortunes. And yeah. It's like, how does that start? Generational wealth. They're not even in the top 10 list now, though. I looked it up. Oh. They they do not have one of the world's largest fortunes today, but probably some YouTuber does. So same, <laughs> same. Uh, basically rubbing elbows elbows with the Rockefellers over here. We're not in the top ten, so <laughs> right, right. Clark said that he was going to interview every high powered attorney in Boston so that Sandra wouldn't be able to use any of them because of the conflict of interest restrictions. Mm. But Sandra was able to get a good lawyer. And on top of that, Sandra's father, William Boss, and I'm sorry, you don't go through life with a name like William Boss without being like a gangster. Boss. <laughs> right. <The boss. laughs> like, I'm William Boss. It's like I'm Chuck Bass, you know? I was just about to say, why does that sound familiar? <laughs> I'm Chuck Bass. And he was not too pleased about his soon to be ex son in law. And so he started looking into him, and he was suspicious that Clark was either hiding Rockefeller money from Sandra, or else he was stealing money from her. And so the yeah, first thing that not. William did was look up Clark's mother on Wikipedia, because she was the child actress, Ann Carter, who had died in a car accident years ago, along with Clark's father. So imagine William's surprise when her Wikipedia claims that Anne is very much alive. And I mean, Wikipedia isn't always accurate, but usually they at least know if someone is dead or not, like most of the time. Yeah. And if you're going to lie about your dead parents, you typically aren't someone that has a Wikipedia page right. that could then be searched. For right. That. Right. Like, and how did it take this long for anybody to search that? Yeah. The first thing I do, if somebody tells me, like, uh, like Lauren says, oh, my my uncle is in Journey. I'm looking him up. I got his Wikipedia page already pulled up. What, this guy? This yeah, guy? Is that I mean, your uncle right there? <laughs> I mean, <laughs> I'd have it pulled up. It doesn't say anything about dying in a car crash. <laughs> what do you mean? Wait, is that for real? Uncle in Journey? Yeah. Yeah, her uncle, he wrote Don't Stop Believing." Yeah. I tell that to everybody every time that song comes on. I still talk about it. What I'm a like, fun fact. My sorority sister's uncle wrote this song. He was their keyboard player. Yeah. <laughs> I know. What a fun fact. Reaping in That's the like my one, my one uh, <laughs> connection to fame. <laughs> now when I'm at a party and I need a fun fact, I'm like, my sorority sister knew another sorority sister whose uncle wrote. <laughs> it's your sorority sister too, Dean. I know, but I just, I meant like, you know. <laughs> I say, my sorority sister's uncle wrote this song <laughs> every single time. And I've said it to the same people multiple times. They're like, I know. <laughs> we know. Nobody's interested. <laughs> <laughs> I would be the worst rich person name dropper. <laughs> oh, thank God I'm not. You think okay. so? Yes, I could see that, but I could also see you being annoyed by someone else doing that. Oh, I totally would be. And I, I think if I actually, I just get excited about it because it's so far from my world. I think if it was my, if it was my world, I would be like, whatever. <laughs> yeah. So William Boss finds out that. Clark lied about his mom. So he wondered what else Clark had lied about. And he did some more digging and he found more inconsistencies. The divorce proceedings with Sandra and Clark 
were basically a joke. First of all, Clark had never filed the paperwork because they got married at that Quaker meeting house, remember, where you don't really need those technicalities. So they were never actually legally married. I guess you they were probably by this time like common law common. married, if that's a law in I don't know, New Hampshire, New York, or or Massachusetts. Doesn't feel like it would be, but <laughs> I don't know. It is here. So they weren't actually legally married. And then he refused to produce any documentation to prove his identity. Because he doesn't like have nothing. anything. He just walk around with like a manila folder full of all this stuff. He doesn't even have a but like give me a driver's license. That's what I'm saying. Yeah. yeah. He didn't have anything. He's not who he says he is, is he? What? Who would lie about being a Rockefeller? Come on. <laughs> <laughs> I'm getting too good at this. You should just cut that. I don't want to give it away. <laughs> no, people think you're not a newbie anymore, and you still are. It is I know. over halfway through this episode, and you are just now catching on to somebody's bullshit. <laughs> <laughs> somebody's bullshit. So Sandra walked away from this divorce with just about everything. She got the house and the church in Cornish, the townhouse in Beacon Hill in Boston, and custody of Snooks. Yeah. All in exchange for $800,000 and the promise that she wouldn't look further into his identity. What? That can be a part of the agreement? Yeah. She's like, look, I won't look more into you if you will take this $800,000 and leave me the hell alone for the rest of my life. Are you kidding? You hoodwinked me into marriage. I'm digging up every single but this way she gets a clean break she gets her daughter she gets all her money and he can just leave except for eight hundred thousand dollars snooping later oh yeah i'm sure well yeah so (laughs) clark exchanged at least three hundred thousand dollars into krugerons which i'm probably saying wrong it's the currency in south africa he like exchanged it into south african currency and then he exchanged that south african currency into u.s gold coins and I'm like, dude, do you not know how terrible currency exchange rates get when you do that? <laughs> you talking about the little like Sacagawea coins, the golden dollars? I don't think he. Tr- I don't think he got them for U.S. gold one dollar coins. <laughs> no. <laughs> Did I say that right? Sacagawea. 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 Yeah. Oh, I said it right. Okay. Yeah, and he, and then he kept the rest in cash. And Sandra took Snooks and <laughs> just picturing him walking around with just bags, bags and bags and bags of gold coins. $1 coins. <laughs> like trying to pay for like a hotel and just $1 Sacagawea coins. <laughs> One Sacagawea, two Sacagawea. <laughs> Sir, we need 1,472 Sacagaweas. I'm picturing Kramer. Count these out. (laughs) (laughs) Well, Sandra took Snooks and she moved to London where she got a job with the Bank of England. And Clark was allowed three visits with Snooks a year, supervised by a social worker. So Snooks was in Boston for one of these visits in July of 2008. She was seven, and she was riding Clark's shoulders as they walked toward Boston Common for to ride the swan boats over there. And a social worker was trailing behind them when a black limo, which is sometimes referred to as a SUV. So I don't know if this was a limo or SUV, whatever. It pulled up to the curb and quickly Clark put Snooks on the ground, pushed the social worker away jumped into the limo with his daughter, screaming at the driver to go. 
The driver had been told that he might need help getting rid of a clingy friend, and so he didn't think anything of the quick getaway. The social worker had grabbed hold of the door handle of the car, but was only able to hold on to it for like a few yards before he finally had to let go. A few minutes later, Clark told the driver to pull over, and then he hailed a cab to the Boston Sailing Center, where he had a friend that was meeting him who'd agreed to drive him to New York for $500. He told her that they needed to catch the ferry to Long Island by 8 p.m. and asked her to hurry. They made it to Manhattan, but when they got stuck in traffic near Grand Central Station, Clark scooped up Snooks, paid the friend, and took off. Right after he jumped out of the car carrying his daughter, this friend got a call from another friend asking if she'd seen the Amber Alert about Clark's daughter. And that's when she realized she'd been tricked into helping Clark kidnap his own daughter. (gasps) Back at the Four Seasons in Boston, Sandra was worried. And she was getting more worried by the minute as the police tried searching Clark up in a national database to find absolutely nothing under the name Clark Rockefeller. They asked her for Clark's information so they could find him, and she didn't have anything to give them. She couldn't give them a driver's license number, a social security number. He'd never been on any of her tax returns. All of his credit cards were on her accounts. Even his cell phone number was under the name of a friend. By the next day, the FBI was involved, led by Special Agent Noreen Gleason. She'd called the Rockefeller family, who had told her, quote, under no circumstances is there a link. We are not connected. Clark Rockefeller was officially not who he'd claimed to be. Even his own wife was none the wiser to who she'd been married to for over a decade. I just, like, don't even know how you, like, I'm trying to think through all, all the of things that? that, like. I know. I think, I think that at first it's kind of one of those things where, like, you just want it to be true, so you kind of ignore things. And then after they got married, I think he just became so controlling and had her so under his thumb that she, like, didn't see it. But so I know that his parents were in the car accident, he said, but there's like, well, and I guess the other family is like, we've had a falling out. We're strange. I'm thinking of like, I don't think I could marry someone and like be with him for a decade and not have met any of their, there's no family interaction, like no other person. Well, I would definitely see that as a giant red flag. If your side of the family is empty at the wedding, like that's how a lot of con artists are. Like, you always hear that, like, their side was empty, but they always have a way to explain it. I mean, they're just so good at explaining these things away, and you believe them, yeah, because who would like, who would make up that they are a Rockefeller? I know. Like, what a big lie. What a bold lie. Like, you're not just trying to come in. I think of a in. big lie. I'm ready. What? I gotta think of a big lie, and just... Just call me Kristen Carnegie, and let's go to New York. <laughs> Man. Yeah. Wow. I know. I guess I should change my first name, though, too, then. So it'll be like, no, I don't have to. I'm going to go Kristen. No, yeah, you really suck at picking out names, so you should probably stick with what you got. (laughs) (laughs) It's not my forte. You're you're right. You're right. It always was. I like I swear half the novels I never finished was because I couldn't think of a name for the character. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, rest in peace, Kelly Wood. (laughs) (laughs) My alias. I... 
it just think about like even just this week, all the documentation, like making a doctor's appointment. I had Russell's like insurance card and his license and like all this just stuff but that I have Clark access Rockefeller to. Clark Rockefeller would have never let you make him his doctor's appointment. They weren't partners, you know, yeah. like they weren't like partners in life. Like, like he, he was just have, taking like, insurance. Taking. <laughs> right. Right. Yeah. It's just crazy. I can't wrap my head around it. I don't know. I can I can see how somebody could be bamboozled by yeah. an abuser, you know, and when you're abused, I just don't think you're asking a lot of questions. And I think he was abusive mm -hmm. and I think he was controlling and manipulative. And she was away a lot, too. I think we have to remember that, too. Like, she worked in New York. And he's moving them to New Hampshire and to Boston, which Bo it's not easy to get to New York from Boston, either. It's, it's like four hours from Boston. There are good schools mm -hmm. in New York. Like, why aren't they moving to New York? It's because he had some altercation. He got into some trouble or something. He's trying to run from it. But I just think, like, when you're with an abuser... And you're you're trying to be gone as often as possible. You know, you're not like, I don't know, asking about that stuff. Yeah. And like you have answers for everything. Like you have an answer. So there's nothing you're like wondering about. You're maybe not satisfied with the answers. Like the answers are maybe right. not very satisfying. But there is an answer. There's an answer why he isn't making any money. There's an answer why he's estranged from his family. Yeah. There's an answer to trying why... Like you get, and she didn't just, know that he never filed the marriage license. Like she had no idea that they weren't right. actually legally married. She yeah. like filled out the know. paperwork, and, like, and he never filed it. When you're charming and you have a connection with someone, I think a lot mm -hmm. of things, like you said, yeah, can be explained mm -hmm. away. I think it's just easy to look at somebody and be like, "What an idiot!" But like she wasn't an idiot. I mean, she's very clearly right. not an idiot. Like she's a smart person, Obviously. and. Mm -hmm. You know, like, you know, when you don't know the red flags to look out for, I don't know. So the police's very first priority was to find Snooks. I know a lot of people say, oh, it's a parental kidnapping. They'll be fine. But actually, one third of children kidnapped by a parent endure serious harm. And that's not counting the physical and emotional trauma that far more of them suffer. So it's not just like, a oh, it's just a parent that took them it can be a real danger. The FBI spoke to the limo driver and the friend that drove Clark to Manhattan, quickly realizing that both of them had been set up. They talked to other friends of Clark's and each one had been told a different story about where he was going. Possible destinations included Peru, Alaska, Turks and Caicos, and the Bahamas. Each one was a total lie and a total waste of the FBI's time. But finally, the FBI got a lead. They went to speak to one of Clark's friends. Clark had actually been over at the guy's house the night before he kidnapped Snooks, and he'd had a glass of wine that night at the friend's house. And it just so happened that this friend was more me than you because he still hadn't washed this glass. And so they were able to get fingerprints off of the glass. Remember, they don't have any identity on this guy, but now they have his fingerprints. I appreciate that compliment but i mean good for this person because <laughs> uh -huh. we need those the evidence. smudgy ass glasses <laughs> yes while they waited for the lab at quantico to analyze the fingerprints they blasted his picture everywhere that they could they got a call saying that his real name was chris gerhardt and he'd been a film student at the university of wisconsin 
So the FBI start looking into this Chris Gerhardt until they get another call saying, actually, his name is Christopher C. Crow, a TV producer who'd worked for at least three investment firms on Wall Street. Hmm. They got other calls saying that they recognized him as Christopher Chichester, a descendant of oh. British royalty in line for the crown, who'd oh, vanished sure from L.A. in the 80s. Christopher Chichester was also wanted for questioning in the disappearance of a couple in California. Oh, no. None of this. That's a terrible made-up name, though, too. So, <laughs> yeah, you should. They're all bad. Yeah. None of this is good. Clearly, Clark Rockefeller, or whatever his real name is, is someone who has spent decades changing his identity, possibly to cover up a murder that he committed. He's definitely dangerous, and now he's kidnapped his kid. A lot of times, the situation that is most dangerous for kids with a parental kidnapping is when the parent is at the point of, if I can't have her, she's not going to have her either. And a lot of times it ends in a murder-suicide. What? Really? Yes, I know. Like, I know. I, I understand the, like, if I can't have her, neither can she. But, like, a murder-suicide with your child? Mm-hmm. That's awful. I know. It's all awful. I mean, every murder is awful, but that's, like... Well, it's just, like, the most selfish thing. Yeah. The worst thing the FBI could do was to let Clark know that he was caught. You know, they had to be more cautious than that, because that would not end well. Finally, the prince came back from the lab to identify Clark Rockefeller as Christian Carl Gerhardt's writer, a 47-year-old German immigrant. Well, that would have been a cool name. You could have just gone with that and sounded like really rich and... Well, yeah. He grew up in Bergen, Germany, a small resort town in the Bavarian Alps. Fun fact, my dad thought that Bergen was German for Berlin, and we almost missed our flight to Berlin <laughs> because we were at the wrong gate at the airport, and I will <sighs> never let him live that down. <laughs> so we're saying it here. You Blasting knew it was it. coming when you heard Bergen, didn't you, Dad? <laughs> Anyway, he grew up in Bergen to very creative parents. His dad was a house painter and an amateur artist, and his mother was a seamstress. Growing up, he didn't fit in with the other kids, and so Clark completely immersed himself in a fantasy world that he'd created. And he was also creating different roles for himself, and he always had crazy ideas. But nobody in Bergen had heard from him in 30 years. Hmm. One day in 1978, he was on a train trip and he met this family from America and he charmed the pants off of them and they just loved him and they told him that if he were ever in the United States, he should look them up. That's just kind of something you say, you know? So imagine their yeah. surprise when he showed up on their doorstep in Connecticut completely unannounced. He was like 16 at this time or something. And look me up isn't like, show up unannounced it's like hey let me know you're coming in town and we can grab a coffee not like right, showing up at right my no not like showing up with a suitcase like he he moved in yeah. with them for a while like he lived with them but soon he posted an ad in the paper looking for a place to live and by this time he changed his name to christopher writer from christian gerhardt's writer and this is where he started to reinvent himself he ended up living with the Savio family in Berlin, Connecticut, which is a coincidence. 
They had several sons around Clark's age, including their eldest son, who was named Edward. And living with the Savios is where Clark really started practicing and perfecting his English, as well as the art of the backstory. He told his family that his father was an industrialist and did something with Mercedes. And then he became completely obsessed with Gilligan's Island. Did you ever watch Gilligan's Island? <laughs> I mean, like, I've seen an episode or two. Like, so, I know you the know, characters, yeah. You know the character Thurston Howell III? Uber rich guy that was, like, part of the shipwrecked crew? Yeah. He was obsessed with Thurston Howell III. He started mimicking his speech patterns. He started, like, acting like Thurston Howell III. But it's so forced and terrible on Gilligan's Island. I know. I know. That's kind of the funniest <laughs> thing about it. It's yeah. like, like of all the, the things. To <laughs> right. He told the Savio's oh. family that sleeping on their couch was beneath him and let them know <gasps> that he expected them to have his breakfast prepared and his clothing washed as soon as he woke up every day. Excuse they me? quickly kicked him out. <laughs> okay, great. Thank you Yeah, for that. After that, he became known as Chris Kenneth Gerhardt, who enrolled at the University of Wisconsin in Milwaukee and studied film. He called the Savio's family from Wisconsin to tell them that he was planning to vote for Reagan in the 1980 election. And they're <laughs> like, you can't vote for Reagan. You are not a citizen of this can't country. vote, yeah. And he said, don't worry, I'm getting a green card. I'll soon be a legal resident. So no worries there. So in 1981, he got married in front of a courthouse to a woman that he didn't know very well. She was actually the sister of a woman he was dating. And I really want to know that whole story. Like, yeah, you're marrying your girlfriend's <laughs> sister for a green card like that. Why did your girlfriend say like, no way, I'm not marrying you. But here's my sister. Like, I really want to know how that happened. Yeah, I feel like there's definitely like a, a follow up there that we <laughs> right. I'd love to get our hands on. And after she went with him to sign some immigration documents so that he could get his green card, she never heard from him again. Oh, wow. Yeah. Yeah. He left school and he headed to L.A. under the name Christopher Chichester. And Edward Savio said that he, like, got the name from a teacher they had at their school or something in Berlin, Connecticut. Yeah. He actually settled nearly 20 miles east of L.A. in a wealthy suburb called San Marino, where he used that Thurston Howell III accent and some nice clothes <laughs> to convince his neighbors that he was English royalty. That he's, is But ridiculous. he's never like, he's never like, my mom is Queen Elizabeth. You know, he's never like that close. Yeah. He wasn't like, I'm, right. I'm a descendant of John D. Rockefeller. No, I'm a, a descendant of his brother, William. Well, mm -hmm. here he said that he was a descendant of Lord Mountbatten, who was a British naval officer, colonial administrator, and close relative to the British royal family. He was the maternal uncle of Prince Philip. And to really okay. solidify that he was a British royal, he'd do things like kiss a woman's hand when he was introduced to her. <laughs> mm, of course. Mm. Curtsy. Wow. Right. And his charms worked, especially on the elderly widows around town who he'd used for their big houses and lavish lifestyles. But it also worked on the men around town who were convinced that he was someone important. He also managed to convince people that he was a descendant of Sir Francis Chichester, who was the first person to sail single-handed around the world and the fastest circumnavigator. And Clark even managed to get an article in a local paper about him living in the area. 
The article included a photo of Clark with the Gypsy Moth, which was the sailboat that Sir Francis Chichester had sailed around the world. And they even gave the guy his own public access show called Inside San Marino, where he was able to get a lot of important people to come on and be interviewed. What's happening? I know. He convinced people that he was a student at the University of Southern California's film school, which was like my dream school when I wanted to go into film. It's one of the top film schools in the country. And people were under the impression that he was a teacher's assistant, a TA, at Arthur Knight's class, which was a very prestigious like intro to film class that had special guest speakers like Alfred Hitchcock, Orson Welles, and Clint Eastwood. Clint Eastwood of the Scott Eastwood. <laughs> his, his Snapchat has been hacked. <laughs> oh, no, really? Didn't I send you the oh, screenshots? Oh, you did, you did, you did. Oh, no. <laughs> and it seemed that he had the connections to back up everything he said. He invited a girl and her friends to be his guests at this USC party that had every big name director you could think of. Steven Spielberg was there. George Lucas was there. Robert Zemeckis. He told the girl that he was getting her and her friends passes to this party, and he did get them passes. And then at the party, he knew everyone. The fact that he drove a tan Datsun, well, that was just him being modest, right? Oh, okay. <laughs> also, San Marino might be a wealthy area, but it's not all $5 million plus houses. He lived in the lowest income area of San Marino where the engineers and the teachers live, according to the Vanity mm -hmm. Fair article. To me, engineers are rich <laughs> as a teacher. Yeah. I'm like, wait, those are in the same bracket there? I know, exactly. And he was living rent-free in the guest house of a woman known to be a reclusive alcoholic. The woman's name was Ruth Sohas, who went by Dee Dee. Well, Dee Dee's son John and his wife Linda ended up moving back in with Dee Dee and John had been living in Pasadena working an entry-level job at a jet propulsion lab while Linda worked at a science fiction bookstore. And they brought with them their four cats and a horse. Uh -huh. Well, John did not like Clark or Christopher Chichester, as he knew him. Is that the jet propulsion lab, propulsion lab that Clark later, quote-unquote, sold? sold. <laughs> Maybe so. Maybe so. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. We all carry around stressors, big and small. For me, this comes in the form of work, too many deadlines, relationships with people, irrational fears of the future. When we keep them bottled up, it can really start to affect us negatively, mentally and physically. Therapy is a safe space to get things off your chest and to figure out how to work through whatever's weighing you down. My therapist has really been helping me work on coping skills for how to handle my stress, how to handle day-to-day -day tasks that I struggle with, as well as working on communicating and improving personal relationships and just talking through problems with somebody who understands. It's something I wish I'd started ages ago. But finding a therapist is so overwhelming. Are they taking new patients? Are they taking insurance? And once you find one that says yes to both of those, are they a good fit? If not, you have to start the process all over again. 
If they are a good fit, you've got to figure out some way to fit appointments into your busy schedule. But BetterHelp takes away all of those barriers, and I'm so thankful. I love my therapist. I really feel like they took my questionnaire that I filled out when I signed up and really used it to match me to the perfect person. So if you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online, designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit BetterHelp.com creepers today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P, dot com slash creepers. He wasn't buying his stories, and his mom was pretty vulnerable being like this alcoholic. So John started thinking he was stealing money from her, or at the very least, just taking advantage of her. In early July of 1985, John and Linda told some friends that they had gotten an important but very secretive job with the U.S. government, and they couldn't give any details, but they need to leave for New York right away, and they didn't even have time to pack their things. They said they'd come back for them in a few weeks, and then they were just gone. Around this time, good old Christopher Chichester had asked to borrow a chainsaw from his neighbor, despite the fact that, according to Edward Savio, He'd never picked up an effing tool in his life. Oh, wow. He also invited a friend over to play Trivial Pursuit one day. And when she arrived, the whole backyard had been dug up. And when she asked him about it, he told her that he'd been having some plumbing problems. So you're just going to like dig all that up and figure it out yourself? Or like it was being dug up by the plumbing mm -hmm. company, I guess is probably more the story that she was thinking. So a couple months went by. And Linda's sister started getting really worried. And so she called Dee Dee for an explanation about where her sister was. And Dee Dee told her that Linda and John had gone to Europe on a top secret mission for the government. And when the police called, she said that she had a source that was giving her updates on John and Linda. And she'd gotten two postcards supposedly from Linda that were postmarked in Paris. But John and Linda Sohas were never heard from again. Five months after they disappeared, Dee Dee filed a missing persons report. It seems that she'd become suspicious of this source of hers, which turned out to be none other than Christopher Chichester. But by this time, Chris was gone. He'd taken off and already changed into his next identity. He told his barber that a family member had died in England and he needed to go back to take care of the estate. He left in John and Linda's pickup truck, packed with everything that he could fit in it. Yeah, so he just like took their vehicle. Yep. Yep, stole their car. Mm -hmm. He found himself in Greenwich, and Connecticut. He's going to drive that vehicle across the ocean to... <laughs> to England? Right. Yeah. He found himself in Greenwich, Connecticut, using the name Christopher Crow. He basically played the same con, getting into private clubs, charming older women. He ended up getting hired by a well-known venture capitalist who was a graduate of Yale and Harvard Business School as a computer whiz for this firm. But he didn't do much computer whizzing. He spent most of his time in the trading room talking about his mother and his sister who were back in Paris living in their French mansion. But then his job ran his social security number, and it came back as David Berkowitz, 
aka the son of Sam, aka major serial killer in New York in the 70s. He used a serial killer's social security number. Oh, okay. I was like, wait, what? <laughs> what? Yeah. Like, what a dummy. <laughs> you're going to steal <laughs> If you're going to steal somebody's but like, identity, on purpose? maybe don't steal David Berkowitz's identity. I don't know if it was on purpose or if he had no idea who David Berkowitz was cuz he I don't think he was like living in the states during the Son of Sam era that was like in the oh, 70s. Lord. He didn't come to America until like 1978. So maybe he just didn't know, like, I'm sure he bought this, you know, social security number in some back alley somewhere and didn't know that David Berkowitz was (laughs) the son of Sam. (laughs) So Christopher Crowe was fired, not for being a serial killer, but for using his social security number. But he wasn't down for long. He moved on to a securities company on Wall Street making around $150,000 a year in 1987 as his base salary. And I just keep thinking, you know, I'm so afraid of doing something wrong and losing my job. And this guy is just moving on to the next, moving on and up. I know. I don't think it's quite like that anymore, but. (laughs) I think it is if you have the nerve. You just need a ladder. I hear that if you have a ladder, you can get in anywhere. In the nerve. <laughs> you have, if you have a ladder and you have the nerve, you can just walk in wherever you want. I could get into the Taylor Swift concert if I had a ladder. And I just yeah. acted like I was supposed to be there with my ladder. Okay, yeah. Coming if in. you act like you're <laughs> supposed to be there, mm-hmm. people don't. People don't question it. They really don't. And he was hired to be the vice president. The vice president of this company's corporate bond department using fake credentials that were never looked into. Of course. The people working under him were pretty pissed about having to work for someone so incompetent who clearly had no experience selling corporate bonds. But having experience and acting like you belong are two totally different things. And apparently only one of those things actually matters. I think about that. Not Mm -hmm. the same thing, but like every time I look at people's resume, I'm like, Mm mm-hmm. I don't see your diploma. Like, you just wrote Cornell on here. I mean, I could just write. Like, I'm not ever verifying that someone's graduated from where they said. I think you can just look that up, though. Yeah. You can just, like, look. Google it. Like, you can look it up on the school's website. It'll have, like, if they got their degree from there. I saw that somewhere. Really? I didn't know that. On the Ticket Talk, probably. Yeah, it was some story about somebody getting caught for not having gone there. I feel like it was a story I told you, but maybe not. He started bragging about his collection of Rolls Royces, and he had every article of his clothing monogrammed CCC. Okay, you know I love that, though. Mm-hmm. Christopher C. Chichester. No, Christopher C. Crow. No. Yeah, Christopher C. Crow. That's who he is now. <laughs> That's a weak monogram, but it's fine. It's not great. He was soon fired from this job once it became all too clear that he had no idea what he was doing. But then he got a job at another prestigious securities firm. But while he was working there, he tried to sell that truck that he'd stolen from the Sohuses. And because he didn't have the proper paperwork, an investigation was opened. And by the time they put it together that Christopher Crow was also Christopher Chichester, wanted in California for questioning and the disappearance of two people whose truck he was just trying to sell, he'd already vanished. And he would reappear a few years later in New York as Clark Rockefeller. Nobody knows what he was doing in those intervening years. 
But in May of 1994, so like 18 years or so before he kidnapped Snooks, workers were digging a pit for a swimming pool in the backyard of the house that Didi Sohas had lived in when they discovered three plastic bags containing human remains. So he definitely did that. Immediately, authorities are certain that they found the missing couple, John and Linda Sohas, and they also found a flannel shirt and blue jeans, which is what John wore most days, as well as traces of blood on the floor of the guest house where Christopher Chichester lived. But he was nowhere to be found. So now police were searching for him in Connecticut and in California, which would be the reason that he was so adamant about not ever stepping foot in either state. Remember, he'd make people stop at gas stations before he'd drive through Mm -hmm. Connecticut. I forgot about that. Mm -hmm. So now he's Clark Rockefeller on the run with his daughter. The FBI, as well as his ex-wife, Sandra, are now pretty up to date on all the cons that he's been running since he was 16 years old. And it seems like since the second he took the $800,000 in that divorce settlement, he had started planning his next con, how he was going to get his daughter back. It wasn't an entirely well thought out plan. He had 20 officers from the FBI and the Boston Police Task Force on his tail, and it only took a few days for them to get their big break. They'd had his face plastered all over the media. That's how they're getting all these calls in about Christopher Chichester and Christopher Crow and Clark Gerhardt and all this. Well, some guy in Baltimore in Maryland called to say that he'd recently sold the guy on the news a house and he'd paid in cashier's checks. And the guy was calling himself <laughs> Chip Smith. And he Aww. told him that he was a single father to his daughter, Muffy. And Muffy? Muffy. Yeah. Like <laughs> the Panera muffin top? <laughs> Muffy. And a ship captain. He was also a ship captain. He had come to Baltimore from Chile. Oh, Captain Chip from Chile with a Muffy. With Muffy, yes. Oh, man, he's running out. He is slacking. (laughs) So the main focus of the FBI is to get Snooks out safely. They want to catch this guy, but they want to get Snooks out safely. So They decided to use what they knew of Clark Rockefeller to create their own ruse. They knew that he was keeping a rundown catamaran at the marina. Uh, On board, they'd found a file detailing his new identity of Chip Smith, so they knew that it was his. So they had the manager of the marina call Clark to tell him that his boat was sinking, hoping that he'd leave the house to go check on it and leave Snooks inside, and then they could go get her. And it worked. Clark quickly left his house, and before he could even get down the street, he had 20 agents on him, while others went inside to get Snooks, and she was found unharmed. How old is she at this point, you said? Like seven, seven, eight? Mm Mm-hmm, seven. Two weeks later, police announced that Clark Rockefeller had been positively identified as Christian Carl Gerhardtsreiter, using fingerprints that they matched to a document from his immigration in the late 70s. Two weeks after that, he was officially charged with kidnapping and furnishing a false name to law enforcement officers following an arrest. He was held without bail, and his attorneys said that they intended to use an insanity defense. I need a lot more charges than that. Like, I need a charge for, like, every fake identity for him, like, 
not letting homegirl eat a full dinner. Like, I need a lot more. Yeah, I just don't think it's, like, illegal to lie to people about what your name is. I know. But I just, all this, like, deceit and, like, you know, we talk about with the Tinder Swindler case. It's, like, I know that things aren't, like, I guess it's just ethical, you know? Like, I have issues with the ethical dilemmas, not Well, and the law in general, sometimes it, you know, steps in where it doesn't need to be. But in general, the law is, like, on the floor in terms of ethics and morality. Like, you've got, like, people are like, well, that's not illegal. And it's like, okay, well, if that's your only reason for doing or not doing something is, like, whether or not it's against the law, then we're not the same. (laughs) Yeah. Yes. You know, yeah. And then sometimes the law is not ethical. And you have, you, like, quote, unquote, have to do things to follow the law that are not ethical, that are against your ethics or your morals. So, yeah, the law and morality doesn't always really mesh. He was held without bail. The trial was held in Boston in mid-2009, and his defense team said that he believed that he could communicate telepathically with his daughter and that she had been begging him telepathically from London to rescue her. Expert witnesses diagnosed him with delusional disorder, grandiose personality type, and narcissistic personality disorder, and they brought up emotional abuse that he'd suffered as a child. The prosecution put up an expert witness that said, yeah, he probably does have those personality disorders, but he was exaggerating the symptoms of any mental illness. He's not really thinking that he can telepathically communicate with his daughter. Right. Because he knows he did right from wrong. You can tell that's why he's covering his tracks for 20 years, 30 years. Yeah, for sure. The jury deliberated for four days, but on June 12, 2009, they convicted him of kidnapping his daughter, as well as for assault and battery with a dangerous weapon from when he'd ordered the getaway limo driver to pull away and drive, even with the social worker hanging onto the handle. Mm-hmm. But he was acquitted of the charge for giving a false name to police. I don't know why. He was sentenced to four to five years in prison for the kidnapping and two to three years for the assault, which were to be served concurrently. So... That's, like, so short. I know. But don't worry, because two years after this trial, on March 15th, 2011, he was charged with the murder of John Sohas. Hmm. The trial that starts... The Ides of March. The Ides of March are gonna get you. We've said that in several episodes. I feel like people really do get got on that day, often. I don't remember us ever talking about the Ides of March. Oh, I do. That is March 15th, right? When Caesar was murdered? When Caesar was betrayed at two brute? (laughs) Here we go. Beware the Ides of March. Mm. Oh, Clark Rockefeller, Clark Christian Gerhardt's writer. Yeah, I don't even like calling him Clark because that sounds... I don't know what to call him. You know, he's got 20 names. So anyways. Sketchball. But don't worry because... Two years after this trial, March 15, 2011, he was charged with the murder of John Sohas. The trial didn't start for another two years, not until March of 2013. But by April, he was convicted of John's murder. They never had enough evidence to charge him with Linda's murder and almost all of the... the Yeah. I don't even think they found her body in the pool. They only found, Mm. or at least not that they could prove, they only found John's remains and his clothes. And so... 
Clark John Clark Christopher Christian. His main John defense Jacob was Jacob Jingleheimer Smith. <laughs> so Jingleheimer over here is trying to use the defense that it was Linda that killed John. Oh, okay. and then disappeared, like ran off to Europe or whatever, and that's why she's sending the yeah. postcards and all of that. So he was not charged for Linda's murder. And every all of the evidence against him, almost everything against him was just circumstantial. But the biggest pieces of evidence against him was the fact that underneath those bags that had John's remains in them that were dug up, underneath yeah. those were two plastic book bags. One of them was from the university that he attended in Milwaukee. And the other was oh. from USC, where he pretended to be a student, but was really just like auditing film classes. <laughs> and then also the fact that he stole the Sohess's truck afterwards, that was yeah. pretty damning. That feels yeah. pretty shitty. So he was convicted of that. For the sentencing phase of the trial, he fired his lawyers and represented himself. Oh, love to see it. That that has really been <laughs> one of my favorite things I didn't know I needed in this podcast. I know. When people... I know. No one's going to fight as hard for me for as me, I me. It's me. <laughs> yeah. Well, and he just insisted that he was innocent at his sentencing trial, blaming yeah. it all on Linda, putting it all on Linda. He was sentenced to like 27 years to life in prison. He will be eligible for parole in December of 2029. They are going to have a hearing. <sighs> there is a hearing scheduled in November of 2028 for his Not on my watch. But yeah, I don't know. Not with like Anna Delvey getting her own show now. Yeah. At least she didn't murder uh -huh. people. Right. As of December 2016, that's like kind of the last update I had, he was serving his time at San Quentin State Prison, which is not a fancy place. So I feel like everyone is there. At San Quentin? Yeah, San Quentin it's is like a the big Alcatraz. one. <laughs> Alcatraz is shut down. There's no no more Alcatraz. I know, but is this like a San Quentin like the Alcatraz? Of no, no. Like Alcatraz, San Quentin is a maximum like federal prison, and it is one of the larger prisons i think it's like a whole complex all right well that is it for this episode thank you so much for listening thank you for all your support thank you for all your support if you want to follow us if you want to support the podcast you can follow us on instagram at creepers pod you can join our facebook discussion group uh true crime at 1k <laughs> discussion group that was very exciting you can follow us on Twitter at Creepers Pod. Sometimes we we tweet. That's all MoGab. <laughs> what do you tweet? Yeah, be sure to subscribe to the podcast so you'll know exactly when our next episode will drop when I will tell MoGab another wild story. Bye, peeps and creeps. <laughs> <laughs>